You're listening to a Radio 1 91FM podcast. Protests in Iran have entered their third week, and it looks as though they may continue for much longer. Civil unrest against the regime began after 22-year-old Iranian woman Masa Amini died from complications after she was beaten severely for not wearing her hijab correctly by the morality police. Amini's death sparked mass unrest and public outcry across Iran. This has prompted Iranian security forces to kill over 50 protesters and over 1,000 have been jailed by the security forces. Women are at the forefront of these protesters, with many across Iran publicly cutting their hair and burning their hijabs as a symbolic revolt against the Iranian regime. But will this protest affect change in Iran? The Iranian regime, after all, has faced massive resistance from the public in recent memory, with the civil uprising in 2019 being the most violent wave of protest in the country since the 1979 revolution. I spoke with Leon Goldsmith from the Department of Turuka... Oh, sorry. I spoke with Leon Goldsmith from the Department of Turukapu at Tefare Wanlinga or Otako about what's driving the protests in Iran, how power functions in the Iranian state, and whether the regime can withstand the struggle for civil liberties. Here, have a listen. think that the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini has galvanized the public in Iran to protest civil liberties in such a, a bold way? You know, we have to realize that this comes in the context of increasing social unrest in Iran for the last three or four years. I think it's certainly captured global attention in a way that previous protests we may have not even been aware of. Like They had been fairly extensive in Iran, uh, especially in 2019 and since then. So I think that this is part of that wider sense of disillusion and and resistance against the Iranian regime. So this is a long struggle for equality in Iran for a long time, ever since the revolution, really. The reason why this is going to be something quite significant, I think, is because it really comes at a time when the Iranian regime is slightly vulnerable. And I think that people in Iran realize the pivotal nature of this moment I spent about 10 years in the Middle East teaching young people in, in, the, in the Gulf and just across in Oman, just across from Iran. The frustrations against the general frustrations within, you know, authoritarian structures, but also this is doubled for women. They don't have the same material co-optation and the kind of opportunities that men do. But they're just, you know, really struggling against all of these challenges. It's really, it's not necessarily just about gender. It's about the, the brutal authoritarian system that removes people's agency. If we think about the hijab as a symbol, the hijab is one of the symbols of consent to the dictatorship in Iran. It's very important to understand that it's not about the hijab per se. It's about the the, the the agency to be able to wear it or not. So, for example, we have women in France fighting to wear the hijab. We need to also be careful not to put it purely in, you know, religious terms, in terms of this is a theocracy, a brutal Islamic regime, which is repressing women's rights. It's about those symbols of consent. So, for example, in Syria, in the 70s and 80s, the uh, macabre would go around measuring people's beards to make sure that they weren't too long. If they were too long, they would arrest them because this was a secular Ba'athist state. So the same sort of thing that the morality police do in Iran, the Syrians were doing the opposite. Those two regimes were very closely allied at that time. (laughs) 
So it's about power. It's about the authoritarian structures and how to maintain them and forcing people to abide by the symbols of consent. And that's what's really happening in, in, in Iran today, fighting and res- to basically express those symbols anymore. Now, you mentioned that um, it's, it's important not to think of you know, Iran as a theocracy per se. But what is the relationship between the clergy and government in Iran? And why do you think so many protesters are calling for the death of the Ayatollah? The, the real the core power of political power in Iran is with the clergy. This is ruled by the mullahs and the mullahs uh, and the and the uh, sort of like the expediency council, the guidance council. These are the, actually they have more power than the president. The president is actually a very weak figure politically in the Iranian political structure. Um, he's the one that we see on TV. We always pay attention to the presidential election. Is it going to be a soft liner or is it going to be a hard liner? But it really doesn't matter because the supreme leader in Iran is just that. It's not a metaphor. It's, it's an expression of the political reality. And the supreme leader in Iran is the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. So that's why it's no point calling for for the overthrow of Ibrahim Raisi, the president. If you want to change the system, you have to call for the overthrow of the mullahs, the clergy, and of course, the supreme leader, which is the Ayatollah. Interestingly, in recent years, there's actually unlikely sources of criticism of the regime has come from the religious establishment itself, because they people within the religious establishment who may be outside the inner core of power are saying, well, actually, this is not what we want. This is not a genuine Islamic state. They're saying this is a military state. This is just a, basically a, a despotic state with the facade of uh, an Islamic republic. You mentioned the president just before, Ibrahim Raisi. He said that chaos will not be tolerated regarding the protests. Do you think it's likely that the Iranian government uh, or establishment will listen to the protesters' demands and implement stronger civil liberties for them? No, because as I said, this is the system. This is how we try to legitimise the the rule of the of the state. They will not all of a sudden sec- start to secularise Iran. In fact, they will double down. I mean, the protesters are going to cause a massive disruption and you're going to see, unfortunately, a lot of escalating repression inside Iran. I mean, I mean, we go all the way back to 2009 and the Green Revolution. That was a fairly major social movement and they used maximum repression. Thousands and thousands of people were arrested and they squashed it. The difference is, and the thing that we need to watch in Iran today, is what is the critical mass in terms of a wider, broader uprising beyond just the civil liberties, beyond just the, the, the feminist movement, which is courageously and bravely at the vanguard of what would have to be a much more critical mass movement. Now we have what was uh, the poorest part of Iran and the Kurdish region, so the frustrations are already, the conditions are very ripe for unrest. And then you have, on top of that, the brave Iranian woman coming out who borne the brunt of uh, the repression and authoritarian nature of the Iranian regime for decades. Iran has basically been trying to convert its economy away from subsidies and a rentier sort of state for since 2011-12. And that's why you have truck drivers going out and protest and you have taxi drivers who have all sorts of the price of fuel, the price of bread, the inflation is out of control. You've had the pandemic, you've had all of these things. People across Iran have had enough. 
there's really very little sympathy for the for the rhetoric and the the, the signaling of the of the regime anymore so that's what could be different in this case and there's protests also sweeping globally is protesters yeah. in Auckland London, Rome, Seoul, Zurich, and they're all, you know, standing in solidarity with Iranian women. There, there might also be the possibility for more external international pressure. I mean, FIFA is looking at removing Iran from future games. There's a whole lot of international pressure. Do you think that the, the government in Iran could listen to that if it also faces sanction risks? I mean, Iran's been under sanctions for a long, long time. So they had some temporary reprieve after 2015 when they thought that they had sealed a nuclear deal with um, the, the, the Security Council and uh, Germany, the P5 plus one. Obviously, Donald Trump uh, reversed those things. The, the Iranians are desperate for those sanctions to be removed. So any kind of pressure on the regime would come around any kind of negotiation, which are going on right now. So Germany's trying to uh, re-energize those talks, and there's no real desire for an escalation of the nuclear arms race in the, in the Gulf region. But Iran has been pushing basically for that deal to be reinstated as it was agreed in 2015. People in the West realized that that was a deal was actually not really beneficial, and, and it was actually a little bit weak in terms of being able to achieve its objectives. But if the Iranian will make some concessions to the protesters, then I can see some kind of deal done around the nuclear issue. But I don't really believe that the Iranians will make genuine concessions. I think they might make some sort of gestures towards concessions, which may de-escalate things. But I think the Iranian protesters themselves who really have crossed the Rubicon now, because if you just, like, give up and go home, eventually the morality police will be knocking at your door at midnight. So if we do some kind of superficial international agreement in exchange for dropping sanctions and they give some concessions to the protesters, it may not actually cut with the protesters themselves, who would see it just as a kind of, like, a, a facile attempt to try to de-escalate. So I, I, I think this could be quite a bit different from 2019. But what you will see is that the Iranian regime will get possibly support from unlikely sources. You think about the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Arab Gulf monarchies, even even the Egyptians. They have got no desire to see another Arab Spring. They've got, they have no desire to see another wave of protest movements that are already we're seeing in Lebanon, we're already seeing in Algeria, Sudan. Even though they are geopolitically arch enemies, I actually think they would have no desire to see a successful revolution. So the counter-revolutionary forces put into that equation, China and, and Russia, and the regime will have a lot of international support to maintain the status quo. They don't really care about protests in Rome. They don't really care about protests in Auckland. But you mentioned about all of these protest movements, and but I think that's the, that's the key point. If you remember the Arab Spring, I mean, that's a long time ago now, I'm an old guy, in 2011-12, that wasn't just an Arab Spring. That, that was also a really pivotal moment where people were actually going out. There was even, there were protests in Russia at that time. There were protests in China. There was even like tremors making as far as Singapore. You would think it would be the most stable authoritarian state. A general sense of, of like resistance against the authoritarian bargain. 
we have to realize the wider context and not just focus in on Islam and the hijab. And this is a struggle against tyranny itself. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.